Good morning, brethren. Please uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. An easy way to find Haggai is just go backwards from Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, uh, Malachi, Zechariah, then Haggai, the prophet. Last time I was here, I shared uh, from Haggai chapter 1, so I figured I can keep going to the next chapter. Um, years ago, I had uh, preached through this this book, and I was very blessed uh, by what I studied and what I saw in this book. I, I think it was around 26 messages that I did uh, from these two chapters. Uh, needless to say, that was a expository overkill. But I think the Puritans would have been happy with me. Uh, but so let's recap what we've seen uh, in Haggai uh, thus far. This book takes place in the year 520 B.C. This is the post-exilic period of Israel. Owing to their rebellion, the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by Babylon. And Jerusalem and the temple had been completely destroyed. They were destroyed and the Jews spent decades in captivity. Uh, but later, the Lord raised up a king, a, a pagan king, Cyrus. He was the, uh, the Medo persian emperor and he conquered Babylon. And God put it in his heart. He stirred up his heart to decree that the Jews should go back into the promised land and rebuild not only the city, but rebuild the temple. And it was prophesied about him in the book of Isaiah, that he would lay the foundation of the temple. He would be responsible for that. And that is exa exactly what happened. So about 50,000 Jews went back to the land and then started rebuilding God's house. They managed to lay the foundation of, of the temple. And as I mentioned last time, it was so important to build the temple because this was the center of the life and the worship of the Jews. And, and this was representative of the covenant relationship of God uh, with his people. So they laid the foundation of the temple, but then the neighboring peoples start to give them a hard time. They begin to oppose them, threaten them. So the Jews get discouraged and they just stop building the temple. Zeal for the Lord's house quickly diminished and they left this temple in ruins for about 15, 16 years. Some, some commentators say 15, the other ones say 16. It's about in between, somewhere in between. And during this time of inactivity, they turned, uh, the, the people turned their attention to themselves, to their own lives, to their selfish interests. Until this time, the year 520 BC, when the Lord drew near to his people again, he, draw, he draws near to this community. God raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and they exhort and they awaken the people to obedience. So last time we looked at chapter one, Haggai's first sermon. And this was the message of God to the people. After so long, after so many years, there hadn't been a prophetic word in the land for, for decades and this first message that God gives to the people after so long is basically a command for them to rebuild the temple. But it is, it is also a call for them to consider, first of all, who the Lord is. And secondly, their own ways, 
their own conduct, their own selfishness, their own sinful excuses for not obeying the Lord, for not building the temple, and to consider the outcome of their sinfulness, namely the judgment that they were experiencing. God calls them to repent and to rebuild. And the people amazingly respond. Because we're told in chapter 1 that it was the Lord who did it. It was the Lord who came to them. It was the Lord who spoke to them. It was the Lord who called them out on their sin. And it was the Lord who put it into their hearts to repent and to wake up and to begin rebuilding. So now we come to Haggai's second sermon here. Haggai chapter 2. And this story picks up about a month later. So let's read verses 1 through 5. It says here, In the seventh month, on the twenty-first of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. One of the enemy's most potent weapons against God's people is discouragement. You can take a man and grievously afflict him in all kinds of ways. You can even torture him. But if he's strong in spirit, he will persevere. On the other hand, you break a man's spirit and he won't won't even be able to rescue himself out of a paper bag. Our nation's military and intelligence, well, they know this too well, don't they? One of the most sure ways to destabilize a perceived enemy is through psychological warfare, propaganda, disinformation. These are very effective tools that destroy the morale of the enemy, that break their spirits, that cause fear to creep into their hearts. That caused them to be discouraged. And it's only a matter of time before you have the victory. You break the man in here, up here. And you've already won. And Satan, the father of lies, is an expert in psychological warfare. He seeks to crush our spirits. And he often does so not all at once, but little by little. Trickle by trickle through subtle lies that penetrate our minds and slowly eat away at our hearts. A, a battering ram may not break open the door of the castle immediately, but with every blow that pounds against it, that door is weakened and eventually that door will cave in. And that's how discouragement so often attacks us. And this restored community here, this restored community of Jews, they were facing, uh, they, or they were in an uphill battle against discouragement. And as the Lord did in his first message to them in Haggai chapter 1, 
he does here, he draws back the curtains of their heart, so to speak, and he exposes their thoughts and their attitudes. He reveals what's in their hearts, generally speaking, but more specifically, he reveals what's in the hearts of a particular group within the people, namely the older generation, the seniors of the land, of the remnant. These people were growing more and more discontent and disheartened. And this was a dangerous thing because the elderly of the land were very influential. They typically are. And because discouragement is highly contagious. By one bitter root, many are stumbled. And so God deals with this malady quickly and effectively, and he prescribes the medicine for discouragement to these people here. And there's much for us to learn as the new covenant community in Christ. There is much instruction to be gained from what we see here, from what God tells the Jews here concerning discouragement, this deadly foe, and how to defeat it. And we can divide this text into three parts. That's what I'm going to do. The circumstances of discouragement, the cause of discouragement, and the cure for discouragement. We'll take this part by part, starting with the first, the circumstances of discouragement. Discouragement doesn't happen in a vacuum. You don't just wake up one day and, you know, and, and think, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be discouraged today and for a long time. There are factors that are occurring in your life to cause this to happen. There are contributing factors. And it may be physical things, maybe you know, something hormonal in your body and outside, externally as well. There, there are contributing, contributing factors that push us, even propel us into discouragement, that push us over the edge. The Puritans would talk about a frowning providence and often... It's our circumstances, providence of God, that are a contributing factor in what, in, in how we respond, in, in, in our responding with discouragement. And such was the, was the cause, or, or rather such was the case with the Jews here. We, see, we can conclude from chapter 1 and from this text that the temple work this project of reconstruction was very demanding. It took a lot of time and effort and dedication. It was a grueling task. It was, a, it was an exhausting task. You might ask, how do we know that? Well, we can surmise this from the fact that in the previous chapter, the word of the Lord came to the Jews in the first day, on the first day of the sixth month. And the people were rebuked. They were ordered to, to turn from their apathy and start building the Lord's house, start working again. So they did. And we're told that at the end of the chapter that they began to rebuild on the 24th day of the same month. So it took several weeks for them to even begin to rebuild. Why would it take so long? Well, I, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say this because I know there are so many expert craftsmen here and builders here. I don't need to tell you all this, you know, but any construction project takes a long time to get going, doesn't it? Or it takes at least a while to, for, for preliminary, pre preliminary preparatory work. 
You have to clear the site, survey the site. You have to design the plans for this building. You have to do a cost estimation, etc. And I imagine the Jews spending a considerable amount of time having community council meetings. They were planning, they were strategizing, they were organizing groups. They were likely even, not likely, they were, as we're told in Haggai 1.8, God told them to go gather wood from the mountains. That's what they were doing. They were gathering wood. They were gathering the resources necessary, the tools necessary in order to build. And none of this would be easy for them. Because remember, they were living through economic hardships, rampant poverty, drought, blight upon the land. Picture a group of poverty-stricken people. They have their own lives. They have their own families to take care of. They have their own failing employments to take care of. And now they have to focus, on top of all that, they have to focus on this massive reconstruction project with very little resources. Likely no state-of-the-art tools, at least for those times. This would have been a monumental undertaking, no pun intended. It would have been enormously taxing, almost overwhelming. And they didn't seem to be making much progress if we look at this passage in verse 3. All that strenuous, backbreaking labor, and yet in verse 3 we're told that the temple seemed to some as nothing. A lot of effort and a little to show for it. And there was another reason also for the lack of progress of this temple. It was not only because construction was hard, but also because the temple rebuilding project had to be delayed. And we can see this clearly from verse 1 of our text. The message of the Lord comes by the hand of Haggai, this time on the 21st day of the seventh month. So almost a month has passed, almost a month has passed since they started rebuilding. And now we are on the seventh month. The next month. And they wouldn't get much done on the seventh month because if you read the law, you'll realize that the first day of the seventh month was the Feast of Trumpets. The tenth day of the seventh month was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The fifteenth day of the seventh month was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a week-long feast with a time of, of sacred assembly on the eighth day. And work was prohibited during these feasts. So they wouldn't have gotten much done on the seventh month. So, so think about this. So that after so many years of inactivity and paralysis, they finally get the ball rolling with this project. The, the machinery is finally up and running. They're, they're getting started. They're, they're anxious to complete this temple because they've heard through the prophets that, that, that God will glorify himself. They, they heard through the prophets that the Messiah would come. He would be somehow connected with the temple. They're anxious to get this done because they want a temple to worship the Lord in, but all of a sudden they're forced to stop. And this time it's not their fault. So this time they could have truly said what they said in, in chapter 1. It would have applied there. It's not yet the time because it was time to worship the Lord. It was time to stop. It was time to rest in the Lord. But can you see how this would have been incredibly frustrating to the Jews? What's worse, the Feast of Tabernacles was supposed to be the most joyous feast of Israel. In it, they celebrated the Lord's abundant provision, especially in the wilderness, after God rescued his people from Egypt. 
But as we saw in Haggai chapter 1, they had little food, little crops, little resources. They were undergoing God's discipline. And you can just picture the Jews asking themselves during this feast, what, what, what are we to rejoice in? The feast was a reminder of their sin and of the judgment that result, resulted. This would have engendered a spirit of dissatisfaction in them. So we see the pot brewing here. And the pot is about, about to boil over. There are these factors that seem to be working together to set the stage for a fall into discouragement completely. And brethren, the same thing can happen to us. We too can invest a lot of effort, time, energy, and resources in a certain ministry, in a certain endeavor, only to see few, if any, results. Or immediate results anyway. And that can make us want to quit. We can grow weary in doing good. That's why God warns us against it. And at times we are forced to be inactive, not as a result of our sin, not by our choice, but by providence. We want to do so much for the Lord, but we are hindered here, we are hindered there. We are hindered by physical ailments, physical infirmity. The Lord knows our desires, He knows the intentions of our heart, but we are hindered. I so often, this is, that's how I so often feel, hindered. I want to do so much, so much more. I want to run. But I so often feel because of infirmity. I feel like, you know, you're in these dreams, you know, have you ever had those dreams in which you're trying to run for some reason or another and, and, and you just feel like you're so heavy and just can't get anything done, you can't go anywhere. That's how I feel. I know some of you might feel the same way due to physical infirmity. I want to do so much and this can tempt us into discouragement. But we, we must learn to identify these circumstances and guard our hearts. We must learn to view things the way God wants us to view them. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll just say that for, for right now. We must guard ourselves from falling into discouragement due to our circumstances. The Lord is sovereign. This is the Lord of hosts. He is sovereign over even our circumstances. He was sovereign over this feast. He, he knew what was, what was going to happen. And He came in the time He did. He could have come months before, but He didn't. He came just at the right time. Our, our Lord is sovereign. And so we must trust in Him. But let's move on to the next part of the, the, the next thing that we see here. The cause of discouragement. And this is highlighted in verse 3. Some within the community were despising the temple work. The older generation, those who had been alive right before the captivity, these people would have been well over 70 years old at this point, at this point in time. And they clearly saw that this new temple construction would not look like the previous temple originally built by Solomon. They, they hadn't finished it yet, but they could already see this is not going to be like the first temple. And this had not been the first time that they had grown discouraged. Because if you read in Ezra chapter 3, when the people first came back to the land and they first laid the foundation of the temple, years back, what, what does it say there? Ezra 3.12, many of the older generation wept and they wept loudly, not for joy. The young people were shouting for joy, but the older ones, they, they, they were weeping loudly 
due to grief, because of sadness, longing. They had seen the first temple and they had realized that this construction was not to look like the original one. This new one was going to be inferior in every way or almost every way. They would never relive, relive or see the days of the previous glorious temple. They realized that the prophet had spoken of, of a glorious temple to come. But this wasn't it. This was disappointing. Unfulfilled expectations. This can push us into discouragement. What we expect versus the reality of things. So often our expectations are not what God tells us. We are going beyond what God has promised. We are imposing upon our lives things that are not explicitly written about in the Word. We have to be careful of that. But that was about 16 years prior. And so the seed of discouragement was already there, working in their hearts. And now it's a decade and a half later and it flourished again. That's the thing about discouragement. It's so hard to kill. It's so stubborn. It's so persistent. It's like a a many-headed hydra. You cut off one head and two or three grow back. And the seniors of the community had not put this to death. Therefore, it returned with a vengeance. And so the Lord exposes their hard attitudes Here in verse 3, these people, they were discouraged because they were suffering from nostalgic feelings. They had seen the temple, as it says in verse 3, in its former glory. They remembered the grandeur, the majesty of this old building. And their longing to return to those times caused them to despise this new building that they were constructing. Oh, that the, the Solomon's temple was glorious. It was majestic. It was amazing. But you know what? Solomon's temple surely was glorious. Don't get me wrong, but it wasn't that glorious. You see, over time, what had happened to the temple? It had suffered a, a number of sieges, attacks, the gold and silver and treasures and the sacred things of the temple had been stripped away from it. It wasn't the same as during the golden age of of Solomon, this prince of, of peace, this time of peace. So it wasn't exactly the way they remembered. And furthermore, we we also see in Ezra six, it tells us that uh, it shows us there that the, the dimensions of this new temple were actually uh, a little bigger. This this would be a little bigger than the older temple. So. The point here is that things weren't as bad as they were making it out to be. But that's what happens with nostalgia, does it not? It has been said that nostalgia is a mixture of poor memory and imagination. We tend to exaggerate the past and the good of the past and forget all the bad. We long for the good old days because, you know, in my day, things were so much better, right? Right? When I was a a kid, when I was a child, when I was growing up, things were a lot better. But we really forget how things actually were. And we, we forget all the advantages we have today over the past. We have to be careful, especially 
the older brethren, be careful. You might be longing for the days of the past. You might be longing for the times of the past in this church. Oh, that we could return to those times. They were glorious times. But do you remember the bad? Do you remember the negative? Do you remember the convictions that you had that you no longer have? The tendencies that you used to have back then that now you say, well, you know, how, how is it that I believe that back then? You may have changed even doctrinally. And you, you just don't focus on the negative things. There are times where you just focus on, on, on the positive. You want to go back into those times. But you know what Scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes 7.10? Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Don't say, why were past times better? That's, it's not wise. It's not wise to do this. It's not wise to despise the present in favor of the past. Now, don't misunderstand me. There is nothing wrong with remembering God's work in the past. In fact, we are commanded to do this in the Scripture. Remember the works of the Lord. This can actually encourage us. But when past triumphs cause us to despise today, to despise what God is doing today, to despise the day of small things, as it says in Zechariah, we err and greatly err that we have to be careful with nostalgia. The Jews remembered the past temple, but they were exaggerating and they were not thinking properly. And in this error of nostalgia, we also see this error that is linked directly with it of comparison. They were comparing the two temple structures and applying this more broadly to our lives. Comparison can also cause us to fall into discouragement when we compare ourselves to other people. We compare our church to another church. We compare the gifts and the graces given to certain brothers and sisters in Christ to ourselves. And we ask ourselves, and we ask God even, why am I not like that? Why am I not like him or like her? We can easily allow discontentment to grow in our heart. And this can lead it into even more sin. This leads into jealousy, envy, strife, dissensions. Comparison is a dangerous sin. Comparison in, in, in a in a bad way. Of course, there's a good comparison when we when we you know lift up a brother and when we rejoice. When we do like Barnabas did, we see the grace of God in a brother in a church and we rejoice rather than comparing it to ourselves or rather than. Uh, uh, sinfully reacting in our comparison. We rejoice at our brother. We rejoice at what God has given him. We recognize that God has not given everybody the same gifts. God has given him this gift. He's given me another gift. And we're all one body. So they were committing the error of comparison, which leads to discontentment, which leads to discouragement eventually it will lead you to depression. And as I said, it leads you to many other sins. We must be careful. And they were committing another error here that led them to discouragement. They were committing the error of carnal reasoning. These folk were discouraged because they were not seeing things from God's perspective. They looked at, at the ruins right in front of them and at the, the construction project 
And they remembered the past glory of the former temple. And, and then they concluded, what are we doing? What, what's the use? What's the use of rebuilding? This is nothing. And they concluded this because they were judging things based on human perspective. Their thoughts couldn't rise above their own brains. They were leaning on their own understanding instead of trusting in the Lord. Notice how verse 3 points this out. It says, is this not in your eyes, that's a key phrase, in your eyes as nothing. When we judge things myopically by what our eyes can see, we easily fall into discouragement. Pessimism takes over. That's why scripture reminds us over and over again, we walk not by sight. We walk by faith. We have believed in the Christ whom whom we have not seen. We believe in Him. And we are to walk by faith. And we are to judge things in a righteous or right way. Not according to appearance. Right judgment. How? According to God's Word. According to God's perspective. Because this, brethren, is God's perspective. Here we have the bigger picture. We are to judge according to God's perspective. Not according to the flesh. We are to judge no one according to the flesh. We are to view ourselves, each other, everyone, our church, our ministries in the light of what God says, not in the light of what we think. Take your eyes off of your circumstances, brother, sister. Look unto Him. Take your eyes off of what you're suffering And look unto Him. Believe His promises. It's when we don't do this that we fall. So this gets at, really gets at the root of discouragement. What is the root of discouragement? Unbelief. Unbelief. What what, what is looking at things through our perspective? Unbelief. So then how do we conquer discouragement? Well, what's the opposite of unbelief? Faith. That brings us to the last part of our text, the cure for discouragement. We see this in verses 4 and 5, where God tells the people, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. How does the Lord remedy the people's growing discontentment and despondency? By pointing to Himself. By doing just what He did in the previous chapter. He reminds them of who He is and of His promise to be with them. He commands them to obey in the light of who He is. For I am with you and His presence. I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Remember, this title, Lord of Hosts, is talking to us about the Lord of the heavenly hosts, the heavenly armies, the sovereign king of of the universe. This is his royal title, denoting his sovereignty over heaven and over earth. This title is translated in the New Testament as the Lord Almighty. He is the Lord Almighty. This is the Lord who is with you, the Lord Almighty. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Psalm 46. Read the whole psalm. Therefore, I will not fear. I will not fear if even the whole earth shakes and trembles and is moved and the mountains are cast into the sea because the Lord of hosts is with me. 
What greater promise could you need than that, than the Lord Himself? God Himself promises to be with His people. And remember, I am with you as a covenant promise. He even points this out in verse 5. According to the covenant that I made with you when I brought you out of Egypt. He promises presence to be with them. I am with you is what God promised Moses when he called them. It's what he promised Israel in saving them out of Egypt. It's what he promised Joshua. It's what he promised the prophets. I am with you. How is it that the nation of Israel could have come out of slavery in Egypt? How they could have conquested the land? I am with you. It's only when the Lord is with us that we can do great things. And he's telling them the same thing. I'm here. I am with you. Furthermore, he promises in verse 5, he says, My spirit remains among you. My spirit remains among you. This is one of the most, uh, like the clearest assurances of God's promise in the Old Testament of his presence among his people. My spirit is among you. And by the way, we see the three persons of the Godhead in, in, in Haggai. We see the Father, we see the Son. He will be prophesied later in Haggai 2. We see the Spirit. Brethren, God is with us. If God was with the Old Covenant people, if God could say this, My Spirit remains among you, O unbelieving, O faithless people, My Spirit remains among you. If God could say that to the Old Covenant people, how much more is this not a reality to us who are in Christ, who have been united by faith to Jesus Christ? He is with us and His Spirit is not only with us, it's in us. I'm reminded of the words of Christ. He is with you and will be in you. The new creational, new covenant measure of the Holy Spirit. He is with us. And Jesus Christ Himself promises us, I am with you always. The Great Commission, I am with you always. This reality alone, brethren, should diminish our disheartening or depressing or discouraging thoughts through failure, through tribulation, through the fire, through the deepest suffering we undergo. He is there. He is with us. And you know what's even greater? Brethren, in the New Testament, we're shown that He's not only with us, <coughs> bearing with our foolishness, He also sympathizes with our weaknesses. We have a great, compassionate high priest he has compassion on our ignorance, on our waywardness. He's not only with us, He sympathizes with us. And He loves to bandage our wounds. To wipe every tear from our eyes. This is His delight. He is with us when we are undergoing the worst of circumstances. What excuse do we have to be discouraged? And I say this to my own soul. You know, I... I feel completely inadequate and completely unqualified to teach what I'm teaching right now because I so often struggle with discouragement. And some of us are, have more of a proclivity toward discouragement because of our, you know, physical infirmity, because that, you know, our physical, what we are undergoing physiologically affects us mentally and even spiritually. It's all connect, connected. It's all related. But you know what? We, we need this. I need this. We need to be reminded of this. The Lord is with us. 
This will dissipate our discouragement. The next time you are tempted to feel discouraged, remember that the Lord is with me. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. Though I'm, I'm, I'm in pain right now, or though I've been rejected right now for the sake of Christ, we are, I'm suffering right now. He will never leave me. It's one of the things talking with, with, with Brother Kyle, uh, one of the days that we were talking together and praying, I was reminded of that passage of 1 Peter where we're told when we are rejected for the sake of Christ, we are blessed and we should rejoice. It's a joyful thing. The Spirit of glory remains among us. The glory Spirit is among us when we are rejected. And I was able to encourage our pastor with that. The Spirit of glory Remember that. Next time you are rejected for the sake of Christ, remember that. Spirit of glory, even though I don't feel it. It's not about your feelings. It's about what is reality. You see, this is a promise and this is a reality. Whether you feel like it or not, He is with you. And then we see here, in the light of God's presence, to conclude this this message, we see... There are three things that the Lord commands the people to do in light of his, the promise of His presence and the reality of His presence. We see in verse 4, God tells them, be strong. And we see it through repetition. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people. This is a personal message. God comes personally to the leadership of Israel. He comes personally to the people and tells them, be strong. This is emphasizing the personal words and the repetition is also emphasizing the fact that it's important. You know, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew culture, they wouldn't underline a phrase, they wouldn't highlight a phrase, they would repeat it. That's the way they, they would emphasize something. So when God repeats something, it's important. He's telling the people, have courage. Have courage, have courage. He's emphasizing our need to be bold. The righteous are as bold as a lion. To press on knowing who we serve. You know, courage is a forgotten virtue. There's a lot of talk in our culture about being nice. We have to be nice. Oh, don't offend people. Even in the, in the Christian evangelical world, right? we don't want to offend anybody. There are preachers who even get caught doing or saying Really bad things, giving really bad counsel because of the fear of man, because they're afraid to offend certain groups of people. Courage certainly is a, a forgotten virtue, but we are called to, to have courage. We are called to, to stand up for biblical convictions. We are called to have the courage to confront sin in others in a loving way, in a gracious way, nevertheless, in a courageous way. So many people draw back from this. They don't want to do this because they're afraid. Because they don't have courage. We're called to have the courage to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And God, you know, speaking of the, the promise of the Spirit, God promises His Spirit in, in the book of Acts. You, you will be my witnesses when the Spirit has come upon you. The Spirit comes upon us for boldness. And we can ask God to pour out His Spirit upon us so that, so that we may have courage. 
But I don't know if you understand what, what, the point of this here. Why would God tell them to, to be courageous? What, what is God trying to... Obviously, he wants them to, be, to have courage. But what is God getting at in calling them to courage? This seems counterintuitive. To, to call a weak, pathetic, despondent group of poor slaves to courage. They have no resources of their own to draw from. You don't call a discouraged man to, to have courage. <laughs> unless you're God. Unless you know that he is the one you, you, that you, they should draw from. And you're reminding them of this. He's telling them to have courage. So that they, they realize, I don't have courage of my own. I need the Lord who is with me. Have courage because I am with you. That is what he's saying. He is our source of courage. The Lord God Almighty. And this, in, in saying this, he's saying something Similar to, the, to that which he said in the book of Deuteronomy and in Joshua. You remember, he tells them to, to be courageous, to not fear. It's something similar. They would have been reminded of this because during the, the, the message of Haggai came during the Feast of Tabernacles, or at least near the end of it. And they would have been reminded of the story of Israel in the wilderness. And, and God is reminding them here, just as I told the people, just as I told Joshua, you too, be courageous. And in verse 4, we also see that he calls them to work. He, he says at the end of this verse, and work, for I am with you. And this is a necessary word for us as well. Because discouragement so often leads to paralysis, to inactivity. At those times in which our spirits are cast down, the last thing we want to do is labor for the Lord. We are tempted to forego ministry, to forego doing things for the Lord, attempting great things for Him, and you know, leave out great things. We, we are tempted to neglect even our basic responsibilities as believers, to read the Word, to pray. When sadness and grief and discouragement, despondency fills our hearts. We, we don't often feel like doing anything spiritual. We might even, might even be tempted to not think of the Lord. We might even complain against God and not want to think on, uh, on the Lord. But that is the precise time in which you must work. You must remain active. When sadness fills your heart, you, you may not feel like eating, but you must keep eating because you'll die if you don't. Well, we must keep feeding ourselves the Word of God even if we feel discouraged or even depressed. Don't neglect your basic responsibilities. No matter how you feel, feed off of the Word. Pray. Ask God to help you. Even seek the fellowship of believers. Seek to edify the church of God. You know, the longer you are paralyzed and inactive, the harder it will be to get back up. This often happens in evangelism, doesn't doesn't it? We haven't evangelized. We haven't shared the gospel with somebody for a long time. The longer you put that off, the harder it will be. The more you you know you you start doing it, and you acquire the, the habit of of doing it. In one sense, it becomes easier to do it, at least easier to engage with somebody. <laughs> Be careful of paralysis. We may be discouraged because no one 
appreciates our ministry in the church. No one notices us. We may seem to be making little progress. We don't have much to show for what we're doing. You know, we look around us and we see this brother, this brother, this person in ministry. I, I can speak for myself and my circumstances. I see a lot of evangelists out there, a lot of missionaries out there. They seem to be making much progress in a lot of things, and they have, you know, they have many pictures and many videos and many people getting saved. And you know, it's easy to compare yourself with other people that seem to be running every single day and exerting such a greater effort than that I'm doing. And it can make me feel like quitting. When we compare ourselves to somebody else, it can make us feel like quitting. But God tells us, keep at it, keep working, keep working, keep laboring. You're not laboring for your own glory, for your own pleasure. You're laboring for my glory, for my pleasure. You're working for me. The only person you have to worry about pleasing is me. And we're told in Hebrews 12, 12 and 13, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. When we have hands that hang low, feeble knees, we're not going to feel like getting up. But that's when we have to do it. Strengthen those things. Don't let them atrophy. Keep going. Keep running, brother. Keep running, brethren. And the last thing we're commanded here is verse 5. Do not fear. God closes this part of the message with that. Do not fear. And this is the flip side to the command to courage. We need both exhortations. Be courageous, don't fear. By the way, courage is not the absence of fear, as we're often told. Right? It's doing it even if you're afraid. You still do it. And the way it works, ironically, is that afterward you is when you get the courage. After you start doing it, you get the courage that you didn't have before. But we also need to be exhorted, do not fear. Now think about this. Why would God's people here need to be exhorted not to fear? Because when you're discouraged and when your mind is full of pessimistic thoughts, you will be beset by irrational fears. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, most of our fears exist only in our imagination. We spend so much time worrying about this, about that. What, what could be? What could happen? What if I do this? What's going to happen? What if I do that? We spend so much time being afraid of what could be. And that never materializes. Most of our fearful thoughts never materialize, brethren. And we just wasted a bunch of time. When we could have just been laboring for the Lord, running after hard after Christ, seeking to edify the church of God, the true temple of God. We might, might be afraid of what people think. Afraid of rejection. Afraid of being hurt. That might paralyze us. But that's why God tells them, do not fear. And He tells us the same thing. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. He is with us. I like what C.T. Stutt said. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. In light of eternity... What are we doing, brethren? What are we doing? What, what am I doing often? Paralyzed by fear. When we are commanded to be bold. To strengthen ourselves, not in our own strength, in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That is the key. His might, His power. Don't consider your own uh, circumstances and your own 
bodily disposition and say, well, I'm weak and I'm this and that, I'm lacking in this and that. Forget about all that. Forget about what you're not. Just believe in the Lord and act. And you will do great exploits. And I can say that. I can say that with absolute certainty because God says it. That's the promise of God for us. So, brethren, I pray that this helps us. It helps us to continue building up the house of God. Seeking to edify one another. Seeking to edify God's kingdom. Don't fall into discouragement. The answer to discouragement is faith. Believe God. Believe His promises. Irrespective of your feelings. Believe God. In the words of Christ, you believe in God, believe also in me. Let us cling to Christ.